Hello, and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Adam Kingsmith, and I'm a PhD candidate in politics at York University. And I'm Aris Kompourosos Athanasiou. I'm an associate professor of sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. And my name is Max Haven. I am Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome for this episode Paolo Petercini, who is a game developer, artist, and educator. He teaches digital media production and experimental game design at the School of Art at Carnegie Mellon University and works under the project name Mole Industria, which means soft industry, which is a project for reappropriating video games and a call for the radicalization of popular culture. Paolo, welcome and thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. I first came across your work many years ago uh, with I think the iPhone game, which was a wonderful game to be played on smartphones about how smartphones themselves are constructed, which included uh, having to play guards, uh, exploiting the labor of child miners in the DRC and attempts to uh, make sure that workers at the Foxconn plant in Shenzhen didn't uh, commit suicide. Uh, A very dark game, but a, a wonderful game that used the very platform that it was critiquing in order to make the critique. Uh, Yeah, that was about 10 years ago. So Paolo is also the director of Like Like, a neo-arcade devoted to independent games and playful art in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and has produced a whole variety of games on a number of different issues, ranging from environmental justice uh, to religion, to sexuality, to labor and alienation. And so uh, we're really looking forward to talking to you about these today and your work in general. Uh, and going through some of the games, um, which as we were talking about before we began recording, is a bit like describing a dream to someone, uh, which is to say intriguing, but often a bit alienating too. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, we will we will go over some of them. But before we do that, Paolo, I wondered if we could just kind of begin with a little bit of your own biography and what led you to, on the one hand, being a game designer, and on the other to a kind of radical critique of society and then to bringing these two things together somehow. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, this project, Malindustria, starts in uh, 2003, uh, three or four. Uh, at that point, uh, I was uh, kind of like involved in uh, various uh, political movements, um, kind of like the anti-globalization, uh, the movements against the war that were like, you know, very big in uh, the early 2000s. Um, and uh, I decided to kind of like combine that with what I was studying and essentially like my career track. I was kind of like in web design uh, development, development and uh, I basically like created a game for a referendum that was happening about, you know, labor rights, the right to, uh, you know, not be fired uh, uh, without a just cause uh, that, that was happening in, in Italy. And so I made like a little advert game and a little online game to also to promote a website and a campaign essentially and uh, I kind of liked it and people responded pretty well and so I turned that into a uh, what I thought was going to be you know like a quick uh, 
little a few games projects uh, and called mall industry and so i made like another couple of other games that were like experimental and also satirical and dealing with uh contemporary issues uh, and uh and it kind of took off from there because uh, the response was positive i enjoyed doing it and it was like a good way to also for me to think about issues uh, you know like as a way to do research without actually doing the kind of academic research that maybe some of you do, you know, like reading a lot of long essays. So, so um, yeah, which is something I do, but like making games also helps with that, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I, every year that I'm teaching uh, Marxism and Marxist political economy, I get my students to play a game of yours called To Build a Better Mousetrap, which uh, maybe I'll just describe briefly. And uh, it's, it's a game in which you play a cat uh, or a corporation full of cats, and you're trying to get as much profit as you can from these little mice, and you kind of drag them around the screen, and you, of course, have to exploit your workers, but then you also need to reinvest your profits in building robots to replace your workers, and so you have to hire uh, technologists, and then you have to build computers to replace the technologists, and it's a kind of, in some way, a bit of an unwinnable game because at certain points, uh, or maybe it isn't unwinnable, and you'll correct me in a minute because I just haven't won it. Um, but in, in a certain sense, it's a wonderful simulation uh, of the fundamental crises at the core of capitalism and it, its fundamental operations. Um, yeah, so that game, I mean, has been extremely useful for me and so many of my students over the years uh, in being able to really picture some of the theories that have been with us, uh, you know, from from Marx and from others about how capitalism works, including how capitalism works in the in the game industry. Um, can you kind of tell us the story of that game? Yeah, it's a very small game. It's like one screen, extremely uh, synthetic. And uh, the idea and the challenge for me was to sort of like uh, shrink everything in a very manageable, very visual, almost as no text, uh, um, sort of like a little system. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like the um, more abstract version of some of the games I've done before that were like maybe focusing on certain, uh, um, you know, industries and certain, uh, um, like, for example, I made like a game about the McDonald's uh, corporation, right? That uh, sort of like does, uh, is like a ma critical manage, satirical management game, a tycoon game in which you're sort of like dealing with all the processes uh, and uh, it includes also the more problematic stuff like environmental devastation and uh, labor exploitation, which is something that, you know, uh, tycoon industrial games have not really done before, or at least not overtly so much. Uh, and another one was about a vertically integrated oil company, um, basically like tracing the history of uh, oil, the oil industry in, you know, starting from the end of World War II to the future kind of. And uh, and I sort of like realized that, sure, I, and, you know, people were asking me, oh, you should make one about Walmart, or one about this and, and about that. And, uh, and sure, like you can make a, a critical uh, in, you know, uh, tycoon management game for every possible uh, production process, uh, including, uh, you know, the process of creating games or creating uh, devices for games. And uh, hence the phone story, the iPhone game you were mentioning before. Uh, but um, but yeah, I kind of I kind of realized that yeah, there are you know many things in common and many conflict and contradictions in common, and so um, to build a better mousetrap was a bit of a, um, a an attempt to uh, to make a playable theory essentially. 
starting from the idea that every game, into some extent, especially every game that represents uh, or attempts to represent something existing, is a bit of a theory of the functioning of this particular thing. Like SimCity is a theory of how CD can work or should work or might work. And uh, so going from there, I like made a more ab- a few more abstract games that were essentially presented as playable theor- theories of reducing the kind of like lowering the dial of representation and uh, increase the abstraction, yeah, if it makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes a lot of a lot of sense. I, I really wanted to think about this, this game of yours that I, that I played that I really enjoyed called uh, Every Day the Same Dream. Um, and it kind of reminded me a lot. I mean you're obviously talking about labor, alienation, exploitation, but you kind of take it out of the factory context and put it in the context of everyday life and like the commute, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and I just found myself really enjoying playing that game over and over again and that feeling that grind and that exhaustion. So if you can maybe talk a little bit about that game and, and some of the mechanics behind it. Yeah, the, that game is, has a bit of a, a weird genesis in that it was meant to be a bit of a parody of certain tropes that you find about you know like in media of like uh, uh, white collar alienation and uh, you know daily grind and so on and uh, and also art games that sort of like overtly emotional art games and so that was like my making fun my way of making fun of that but uh, I kind of like realized that a lot of people don't really get it funny part i think it's a pretty funny game but yeah in the game it's kind of like now you will call it a time loop game there are many games that do that essentially that use the or almost like inherent cyclical uh, aspect of video games and try to uh, create some kind of like persistence between the different cycles that's kind of what what a time loop game uh, does uh, and uh, in that case uh, yeah you, you you wake up you're sort of like trapped in this routine uh, and you're, you're waking up and going to work as a generic uh, white collar like the stock character of a white collar uh, alienated worker in a black and white gray world and uh, once you reach the cubicle you sort of like are sent back to the beginning and you're sort of like a trapped in this groundhog day type of situation uh, except you start you might start uh, noticing some details that might be like you know uh, like little cues and secrets that are uh, a bit of like you know way to deviate from that norm from from that commute for example you can decide to walk uh, left instead of walking right uh, sort of like breaking a kind of like an implicit convention in the most side-scrolling games uh, and uh, you encounter you know a homeless person that takes you to a cemetery and so on uh, or uh, during the commute you can decide to just like press the space bar the action button and uh, uh, get out of your car and uh, take a walk uh, in traffic and uh, you don't go. You you go out in the field and you pet a cow. And eventually, you uh, when you figure out, I think like seven sort of like steps. Uh, there is a bit of a resolution, and so there is a bit of an end uh, an ending that is uh, quite open ended, but it, it it completes it and culminates the game. Really, yeah, really interesting. And I was thinking as you were describing this, the I was reflecting back on my experience recently in the last couple of hours of sort of playing a few of your games and. I was thinking about a couple of points that I, I, I would like your thoughts on. One is the element of um, the sort of aesthetic that uh, of these uh, games, of these worlds, that you, the way you represent the figures and the environments that you that players immerse themselves in. And it struck me that you know, there is a, a, an element, there is a, like a simplicity in 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 that. Also, maybe an element of um, 
I suppose it feels, it felt to me, these roles felt to me familiar in a way. Um, And I'm wondering whether this familiarity has to do with uh, something that is sort of unconsciously, it it unconsciously reminds me of the worlds of the kind of perpetual scroll and and the kind of digital social media that we inhabit. And so I'm just kind of, one of my questions is, is that a consideration in, in your design decisions? You know, how these worlds that you create uh, speak to and relate to the worlds that the users, the players are likely to inhabit in their everyday kind of interactions. Uh, and maybe, yeah, maybe you can take this and then I'll ask you my, my second one. Uh, yeah, uh, are you talking about like visually, um, yeah. the, the visual style adopted? Yeah, yeah that's, that's usually pretty functional, you know, um, and uh, uh, this is not a good, a good look, but it's sometimes also dictated by what's, uh, what's easy to do fast uh, with that particular platform I'm, I'm using. So I start, uh, I start more with the idea uh, of like, you know, for example, at the very beginning, uh, most of my game, all my games were made in Flash, which was uh, attractive to me because uh, it had a very, you know, diverse, uh, interesting audience. So basically they were free online games, so they were accessible for everybody. And uh, when I started uh, and uh, until uh, I would say like maybe like 2010 or so, um, Flash games were extremely popular. Like you could have like, you know, your game being played by millions of people uh, because they were free and uh, immediately accessible to everybody, especially, you know, teenagers and kids were like broke and couldn't afford uh, games. That's before the app sort of like uh, paradigm shift. Um, so that was kind of like the starting point. And then what was... Uh, uh, easy to do or like quick to do in uh, in Flash uh, sort of like became or informed my style. And so the the style of a, of a lot of Flash games are is this like very vector-based, very flat, uh, uh, shaded. Uh, uh, ironically, that kind of style is not particularly easy to do with the, you know, the tools I use now, you know, Unity and, um, uh, uh, and uh, I kind of like uh, had to sort of like change uh, some of that. Um, in order to uh, to kind of like be more efficient, but yeah, but the idea was uh, uh, to um, have a bit of like a, a, a jarring uh, contrast between uh, uh, something that is uh, kind of like cute uh, and can blend uh, within uh, uh, the world of casual games. Uh, as opposed to have something that immediately sort of like scream, uh, you know, art house or, uh, uh, you know, um, serious topics, uh, which is, you know, it's just a strategy. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, some people might decide to have like an even more like, you know, specific or like a dramatic or gritty style in order to communicate uh, and uh, not appear to trivialize perhaps some, some issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this element of this jarring element that you described really uh, comes across and uh, I find it really interesting. Um, and I, I guess I was wondering about then if we uh, if we move to the kind of emotions and the, the emotional kind of stimuli that these environments provide and the kind of the pace of the game and, and the decisions you had to make uh, in relation to the kind of emotional responses you're expecting to generate uh, in in the users, uh, in the gamers. Um, I'm wondering, because clearly there is an element of fun, I mean, which I've already spoken about. Um, and then I guess there are moments of, there's, there's some, you know, there are, there's striking kind of, uh, there are striking messages that, that one encounters, that there is repetition. I'm, I'm wondering uh, where you think 
the kind of critical reflection moment kind of comes uh, and how 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 you see the the emotional engagement of the player uh, facilitating that critical reflection if you, if you if that makes sense yeah no it makes sense and it makes sense to conceive as a, as a designer to start from uh, the emotional response it's actually a pretty common you know design framework uh, uh, what do we want uh, what do you want your players to feel in this particular moment and uh, you know and this this other section of the game and so on that's not why how i operate though because uh, i don't know i have already like a a lot of things to juggle in terms of like how do I fit certain ideas uh, into something that is uh, even like remotely playable and uh, you know compelling and more about um, maybe like uh, stimulating uh, a second order kind of player rather than uh, you know immersing the player in in some world and uh, kind of making them forget about the fact that they are playing a game right so the like uh, I'm more interested in uh, creating at, at the very least some moments that can be, you know, can be emotionally charged as well. Some moments in which you are uh, um, sort of like taking a step back and uh, uh, engaging with this thing uh, more intellectually, you know, um, also because uh, by, I think by doing so, you almost inevitably think about the other games uh, that you have played before and how they compare and what the, other games you played before maybe didn't do uh, that. This you know is almost like uh, this, uh, this, this. These are games that are also in in a way in dialogue with other you know perhaps bigger, more important, and more popular uh, games. So uh, yeah, more than uh, yeah, more than the emotional sort of like involvement. Uh, I'm more interested in that sort of like. Uh, uh, um, alienation devices. Uh, I think that's uh, uh, the term that I think Brecht uh, call, uses, right? Uh, Brecht, the theater, the, you know, the German playwright that was like uh, uh, kind of like criticizing the sort of like the emotional involvement in favor of a more like uh, intellectual approach to uh, an, an, you know, an artwork, in this case, theater. And so it will, it will have like uh, meta devices uh, and, uh, you know, like uh, actors, you know, uh, talking to the public and sort of like breaking the, the, the fourth wall as um, you know, and it's very related to, you know, the, the, the time, the, you know, Nazis use of uh, emotional, you know, emotional media to, you know, um, connect, connect with the masses. So it was a bit of a reaction to that. And I think uh, we are still kind of like in that, in that sort of world. Yeah. I, I want to follow up on that because one of the, I mean, so many of the things about your games and your practice touch on the themes that we're fascinated by in this podcast and the project we're working on, which is about this kind of strange uh, intersection of capitalist alienation on the one hand, the rise of conspiracy theories on the other hand, and um, the sense of community. And I, I do want to ask you about conspiracies in a second, but I, I, I think one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot is that in this world of sort of capitalist alienation, which is very, uh, for the most part, very um, uh, isolating for individuals. Um, we often think of games and especially video games as kind of part of that, that people are kind of locked in their own world, playing on their phone or playing in their consoles or playing on their computer. And with the exception of maybe having some friends over or these kind of multiplayer games online, it's not a particularly social experience. I think that is a 
misapprehension of the situation. But one of the exciting things is uh, the kind of creation of new gaming spaces. And I, I wanted to ask you if you could kind of spell out like-like, uh, the space that you that you curate in um, Pittsburgh, uh, for people to play kind of experimental and critical video games together. And uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that and why why you work on that? Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a great question because uh, I still don't know exactly why. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it started as a bit of like, oh, uh, there are a lot of you know game developers uh, and uh, you know uh, there is there is an interesting audience uh, here in this uh, you know it's been a relatively small city of Pittsburgh uh, that would be great to pull together in a space. Uh, it turns out that the space doesn't work that well in that as a social space. It's more like a gallery, and so the the community aspect is much more uh, ephemeral. Um, so there is definitely yeah following and. Uh, you know, once a month it opens uh, and there is an exhibition and uh, uh, and it's basically a party that is happening with a certain regularity. So that, yeah, that's great. And it's just a way to, you know, show games that I think are uh, overlooked uh, or, uh, yeah, uh, games that are kind of interesting and that don't find, uh, I think, a space, don't really fit neither in... Uh, uh, the art world uh, um, don't really fit well in a gallery and uh, in uh, the more like commercial, uh, let's say like um, ex ex exhibition or, you know, like steam platform uh, kind of context. So there, there is uh, actually like, I think the most interesting works are in, bet in between these two worlds uh, and we don't really have, you know, spaces and uh, context to show them and to appreciate them. It's still like a very niche uh, kind of, of goal, uh, a very niche kind of um, area of culture. And I think uh, we have to do a little bit of effort to build that taste because uh, I think they can uh, really appeal to a much larger audience. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, like like is basically yeah a, a room, uh, a gallery look, very gallery gallery looking thing that is taking some cues from uh, um, art curation and art uh, uh, display and. Uh, also trying to figure out m more like novel ways to uh, present uh, uh, interactive works uh, to a general audience. I can't resist linking it to something that we're very interested in, which is, you know, of course, um, Pittsburgh is, is a highly deindustrialized city with a, a high rates of poverty and high rates of, of poverty in the surrounding area as well. And, you know, famously over the last five years or so, um, Pennsylvania has been this strange new swing state in the American political spectrum. And without getting too much into the weeds of the uh, American political situation, I'm curious because one of the things we've been tracking on this podcast uh, and in our project in general has been the way that the, the far right has mobilized video games and has mobilized a certain kind of gamified experience. We've been paying attention to, for instance, the QAnon conspiracy fantasy, uh, in which, it, it, as a number of game designers have noted, it bears striking uh, resemblance to forms of augmented reality gaming that are out there. And in general, there's this kind of strange game-like quality to this process of collective discovery. Um, and so I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm moving towards a question here for you about what it's like to be in that kind of space and thinking about a kind of, um, shall we say, like anti-capitalist counter-gaming in a moment of 
revanchist capitalist uh, revenge politics. Uh, I, that didn't really result in the kind of sharp, precise question that I was hoping for, but I, I, I wonder what you think. Yeah, you know, like I think uh, uh, game developers, uh, which actually do tend to be to swing uh, more liberal than uh, conservative, uh, like to feel useful, and so they like to when, when something happens, like uh, let me, like let me. These are my two cents from the perspective of a game of a game developer, and uh, and yeah, there are definitely like many uh, aspects uh, of. Uh, conspiracy fantasies uh, uh, that are uh, uh, related and eerily similar to uh, alternate reality games uh, in the sense, not in the sense of Pokemon Go, but more in the sense of uh, early 2000 alternate reality games that were uh, kind of like played by a um, decent amount of people online. And uh, uh, I think the best definition of it on ARG is uh, is a game that is essentially a puzzle that happens uh, in uh, you know across different media. But the most interesting thing is that the puzzle that proposes are uh, too hard for a single person to solve. Right, so you have to get uh, to get together with other people, and you might have uh, you might find connect with a, a expert in uh, cryptography that uh, you know uh, decodes a particular message, or you need a person that is uh, up in Toronto or that does something in the physical space or gets get gets a piece, a piece of information so that thing was actually I, I think was like actually interest super interesting and uh, kind of like revolutionary a kind of game that uh, never really occurred before and so uh, it created also a lot, a lot of academic discourse around them um, and yeah and you you can sort of see similar things happening uh, and uh, also like some similar devices like uh, dropping uh, uh, information well for example the fact that there are puppeteers right uh, so an alternate reality games is uh, um, heavily moderated and kind of like improvised by uh, by game designers you might they might have a general idea of how it go but they are constantly responding to uh, what the player do because it's such a you know when you have so many players uh, uh, kind of like all over the place and a non-formalized system that is basically made of informations and puzzle and uh, hidden information uh, everywhere so every all sort of things can happen and uh, the designer had to has to be basically 24 hour uh, hours a day uh, ready to adjust uh, and uh, transform uh, the designs of, of the game and uh, you feel uh, it, it seems that in the, in the case of QAnon, there was a similar kind of like logic of like a very, like definitely like a, a small number of people essentially like uh, mm, creating, disseminating this information or like giving prompts and also uh, picking up maybe like the best theories or the best ideas and integrating them in this conspiracy. So uh, it's both like top down, but also with like strong participation from from below. And I think that's, uh, um, yeah, definitely. I think that the two forms sort of like share with each other. Yeah, just to follow up on that. Um, and I thought your point was really interesting too when you were talking about how sometimes game designers almost like retroactively imagine their influence um, kind of like after the fact and like, oh yeah, like this is kind of like a game and stuff. And so I wonder if you could say 
What are maybe some of the explicit links you see between game design, game architecture, and like political mobilization? Let me tell you a story. Maybe you can cut it in post-production. <laughs> but uh, so when uh, uh, more famously, uh, the first person that sort of like uh, uh, saw in uh, alternate reality games uh, some uh, you know, some like interesting uh, aspect and uh, a potential spillover to the real world was uh, uh, Jay McGonigal, right? Jay McGonigal, um, you know, wrote this book. And, uh, and worked on some of the more like influential early alternate reality games. And, and she was basically, okay, like this is, uh, uh, we clearly have indication that, you know, uh, gamers are, uh, you know, highly functioning uh, problem solvers uh, and uh, uh, we only have to direct this energy and this potential toward problems that are, you know, more interest, you know, more valuable than, uh, uh, you know, like uh, made up, cons- you know, conspiracy or made up like, you know, narratives. And so like, maybe we can, uh, harness this power toward the uh, common good good like solving uh, environmental issues and so on and uh, yeah i think that's uh, uh, i think that's a, a good assessment of the just like the gamer spirit uh, in a way uh, but i also think that the most uh, the special and interesting thing about arg might not be in the gaming part uh, like has like very little to do with gaming but more with uh, internet <laughs> like you know like with the fact that there are people connected and uh, sort of like solving problems together and uh, you know uh, bouncing ideas uh, on each other and so on um because uh, uh, when uh, the first day ARGs uh, was uh, were, were happening I was uh, actually working on this other kind of ARG that was not an ARG was an actual uh an undefinable thing. It was basically a, a, a collective uh, in, in investigative uh, effort. Uh, I was working on this project uh, about uh, rendition flights, which were the uh, kind of like flights uh, operated by the CIA uh, in, with which we, they would adopt, uh, abduct um, suspects of terrorism. This was, you know, post 9-11 um, anti-terrorist uh, sort of era. So the, the, the CIA will operate uh, flights with uh, front companies and uh, uh, sort of like abduct the suspect, suspect and move them and relocate them to secret, a secret network of, of prisons all around the world where they could torture them and essentially use, use illegal means to supposedly to extract information uh, that they wouldn't be able to do uh, in legal ways, right? So that's kind of like classic uh, CIA operating uh, uh, procedure. They are not a military. Uh, uh, they are not a military uh, entity. They are a civilian entity, and so they when when they do something secret, they have to basically hide in plain sight by creating, uh, um, you know, a front company that operates this this airplanes essentially, or using you know normal commercial airplanes. The um, Implication of that is that those flights were easily trackable. If you knew which flight was actually uh, transporting, you know, prisoners and suspects, uh, you would uh, be able to track these flights and uh, sort of like figure. So uh, that uh, that's how we know about the rendition flights and this whole program. And 
uh, it was mostly journalists, but not entirely journalists. It was also a community of kind of ARG players slash conspiracy people, I guess. They were uh, flight spotters. It's like train spotters, but for flights or like plane, plane spotters, I should say. Uh, and they are like people who are just like keeping track of all the planes that fly in and out of a particular airport. Uh, and they sort of like realized that some flight patterns were kind of weird. Uh, there were like some flights that were like, kind of like flying in the middle of the desert and then going back uh, with a, kind of like a pattern that really looked or like this airplane that would be one day transporting the uh, Boston Red Sox or like some uh, baseball team. And then the day after we'll just like uh, weirdly fly in a Kabul or something. Um, so like the this, uh, this diffuse dispersed community did a lot of this kind of like groundwork uh, and it really felt like uh, an alternate reality games. And, and maybe they were also seeing it in the same sort of like gamified way. And uh, the, plane, the plane spotting as a practice seems uh, quite a bit like that because it's about, you know, reverse engineering, solving a puzzle that is not quite a puzzle or, uh, you know, connecting the dots uh, in a you know, conspiracy, conspiratorial way of thinking. Except it was a real conspiracy. It was like a literal real conspiracy that and that had a uh, you know had an, an impact in the world. So yeah, I think uh, more than games, uh, I think uh, we are talking about networked uh, intelligence and uh, hive mind uh, that sometimes uh, you know is for good. <laughs> sometimes uh, it works well, and sometimes it tries to solve uh, you know maybe problems and puzzles that don't exist, but it might still be uh, compelling to uh, to imagine. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Um, thinking about like the the digital and the connected community as like part of maybe what what drives that outcome. Because it reminds me a lot of even like I remember when there was that uh, terror attack during the Boston Marathon, and like people on Reddit were like mobilizing to try and like identify the suspects, and they had like misidentified a bunch of people and caused trouble for a lot of people. Because there was this kind of like hive mind that got out of control. So I think your point is really good too, that it's like, it's not really good or bad. It's kind of like context dependent, historically dependent. Um, and maybe so. Uh, right, that, 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 that speaks to the kind of like a cognitive uh, a fallacy of like many conspiracy uh, theorists, right? That everything uh, is, is, we have so much information online and the fallacy is to think that all the information is online, right? And so like, uh, oh, I can totally, you know, investigate everything and everyone uh, from the internet, from, uh, from my bedroom. Uh, in that case, in the case of the rendition flight, uh, that very specific data set was actually public. And so it was actually um, a thing that was uh, investigable and was like a accidentally a solvable puzzle in a way. Hmm. Sorry to, to cut you off. <laughs> no, please, please. Yeah, no, I think that's, a, yeah. And so, I mean, maybe I was hoping we could turn a little bit to, um, you know, if we kind of bracket some of that networked aspect, some of that digitized aspect, because some of the games that I thought were really interesting that you put were kind of casual games for protest. And these were kind of games that like, you know, thought exercises, solidarity exercises that you could do in a physical location with other people kind of face to face. Maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of some of these casual games. Uh, some of them are so great. Some of them are ones that I've kind of played inherently at protests already with people without even knowing or naming them. So yeah, if you could talk a bit about that. I think uh, there, ha there has been a shift in my way of thinking uh, that happened. Maybe it was accelerated uh, by, you know, the Trump administration, but also I would say like Occupy Wall Street or a general sense that, or like the uh, financial crisis or a general sense that uh, 
uh, it was becoming more and more obvious that capitalism wasn't working for most people, right? And especially the kind of audience that I was connecting uh, with uh, in games. And so, like, uh, it, it to me, it became uh, um, the sort of like the persuasion aspect or, you know, like uh, raising awareness, uh, uh, you know, the whole uh, uh, wake up sheeple uh, function that maybe these games were, uh, were having at the beginning started to become uh, a bit more ridiculous and a bit more like, uh, uh, sure, I'm going to make it an, an anti-capitalist video game, but everybody sort of like already agrees with that capitalism that it doesn't work. Uh, and at the same time, you sort of like see, you know, major media, uh, also being uh, essentially anti-capitalist, uh, you know, like <laughs> from like the Lego movie uh, or like Zootopia, or, you know, I don't know, like some like, uh, uh, it doesn't seem particularly radical to be like, uh, eh, capitalism doesn't doesn't work for everybody and uh, there are problems, uh, right? And so uh, from there, I sort of like uh, figure out that maybe there were two ways uh, to uh, respond to that uh, or to way to move forward from that. And one was uh, basically focusing more on uh, um, envisioning sort of like uh, okay what <laughs> what could be an alternative to capitalism and uh, you can sort of like see it a little bit more in some some more recent games including the one I'm working on and another one was uh, um, how can game uh, how can games uh, help uh, people who are already engaged uh, uh, in uh, political movements essentially so uh, people who are already uh, connected uh, with some process of change and uh, in, and that was this like the starting point for the casual game for protesters so you don't have to convince anybody uh, it maybe it's about making a demonstration more tolerable or more entertaining especially after you know go to a demonstration every weekend or something uh, and uh, it starts to become uh, to feel like uh, uh, you know a formulaic exercise uh, in uh, you know uh, confrontational politics or like you know uh, street uh, uh, street politics um, another example is this uh, role-playing game that is meant to teach you uh, the uh, Robert's rules of order which is a uh, parliamentary procedure that a lot of organization in North America use and uh, they are you know much maligned and uh, uh, kind of like formulaic and hard to learn and so the game slash provocation that is a kind of like an educational game is, uh, is basically teaching you through a D&D like scenario storytelling game it teaches you how to uh, make collective decision making using uh, uh, do collective decision making using that process that is actually uh, being uh, used by organizations and it's a process that if you don't know how to use you might um, you might even uh, you know fell fall, fall victim of manipulation because like there might be even a power differential in uh, somebody who can use the, that process. And uh, yeah, in that case, uh, it, I think it works pretty well in terms of educational game because uh, what the game is trying to teach is the rules of the game itself. So it's not trying to teach you uh, through a formal system. It's trying to teach you something about you know capitalism or something, but it's actually trying to teach you the rules of the game, right? So uh, those are like yeah, two two examples of the uh, approach of uh, let's uh, try to speak uh, to people who already agree. And maybe games have a role in that too.
Yeah, Adam and I were joking before uh, we began recording that both of us are just like so traumatized by Robert's rules of order. So it was delightful to see it gamified in this way because both of us have been in a lot of trade union meetings in our time where those it's gamified and abused. And it's, it's also like a little bit, um, you know, satirical in a way because it, it, it kind of like breaks down the game itself. Uh, yeah, the, the game conceit is that it's D&D, but instead of saying, uh, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, I'm a, I'm a warrior and I'm attacking the dragon, you have to sort of like agree with your whole party and, uh, you know, have, move, uh, you know, uh, put forward a motion to attack the dragon and then, then gets discussed and it has to be seconded and it can be amended and so on. So it usually results in a kind of like a real, uh, very short uh, gameplay or like a couple of decisions or key decisions that tend to go on forever. And, uh, uh, and it's also an exercise in uh, sort of like uh, has like this fuzzy rule, rule system that isn't, it's a bit of an exercise in uh, uh, figuring out when uh, it makes sense to make to uh, use that process for decisions, right? So it's not just about learning that, but it also, oh, maybe this decision doesn't need to go through the whole formal process. I wish we'd played this game before we before we began our Robert's Rules Murder challenges. Do, do, a, do a special. Past. Do a special <laughs> podcast in which you play that. Oh yeah, it's a great idea. What I what I really like about this game is, um, in spite of the fact that in some ways satirical and a bit cumbersome, it it also forces us to think a little bit differently about kind of the political subject, to use the kind of theoretical term. Like I think video games generally inherit from the sort of European enlightenment tradition, this idea that individuals make history. And, you know, ultimately it's the first person shooter who is the agent of change in the world. And what I like about this game, uh, Rules and Roberts, is that, you know, it takes it takes the platform that is provided by Dungeons and Dragons, where everyone is supposed to be kind of playing their own self-contained character that makes its own decisions. And it renders up that character kind of collective uh, agency where you have to actually somehow come to agreement with other people about what is going to happen. And that it strikes me that that moves us towards a different idea of what it means to undertake activism. That's, that's quite different from the conventions. And I, I guess where I wanted to go with that in a question for you is about that other strand of games, which you mentioned that you're working on, which are about like, how do we then envision worlds to come that might be possible beyond this a crumbling system of capitalism and 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 games that allow us to imagine not only what that world will be like but who we will be within that world because we will be very different people presumably when we arrive at that felicitous horizon can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on uh yeah 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 i think uh, maybe like the um the more recent game that uh, that uh, is more clearly informed by that is the democratic socialism simulator which is uh reigns like uh, sort of like public policy envisioning a hypothetical bernie sanders like uh, administration it's not like a strictly Bernie Sanders-like, but imagine like uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, being the next president or something like that. So very short term, uh, very near future uh, transformation uh, toward uh, uh, democratic socialism through social democracy, like via social democracy, which is uh, the sort of like <laughs> the, the way to go, I think. Um, 
yeah, so that that was a, a like a first, uh, you know, a smaller attempt. What I'm working on is basically uh, I I cannot say too much because it's not announced yet. It doesn't even have a title, but it's basically a um, open world, uh, a small open world game in which uh, uh, you are. Uh, it's it's set in uh, uh, 2000 and well, 20 years from now. Uh, in uh, a Pittsburgh-like city, and it's actually pretty, pretty strictly Pittsburgh, uh, and uh, sort of like imagining uh, uh, what uh, Kim Stanley Robinson talks about it as the, the best uh, possible scenario that you can actually be living, right? Uh, to describe uh, his more like two more recent uh, uh, novel, like the one uh, set in New York, is like uh, yeah, it's kind of like a utopia, but it's not like uh, space, uh, you know. Of, uh, you know five centuries from now or or like there is some incredible technology that immediately um you know produces a post scarcity you know a replicator technology of some sort you know, so so it's like something that you can actually believe in and it's basically that represents uh, everything if everything starting from now goes well uh in a realistic reasonable way where are we going to be 20 years from now so that's all all i can say but it is uh, it is a great because it's uh, kind of like an open world. Uh, so it's kind of like uh, right now I'm sort of like a world building, but uh, it's a world building that starts from a very uh, solid uh, uh, foundation of an existing city or an existing society. And that's to me what, you know, most of utopian utopias don't do because they are imagining a sort of like a blank slate somewhere elsewhere or somewhere in the future. Uh, and uh, even like, you know, images of utopia you imagine as like you know tall buildings or something or uh, you know super futurist things that are imagining essentially like uh, not like there's uh, there is a blank slave there is like a tabula rasa you start a building an utopian from uh, even you know uh, in the leftist tradition or like hippie tradition intentional communities tend to be uh, kind of like a movement uh, outward uh, you move somewhere in the desert or somewhere in the woods and we create our com commune. And I think a more interesting uh, challenge is to imagine, okay, what is uh, a utopia that is actually built from the shell of the old? And um, that's why I'm sort of like starting from a city that I know pretty well. Uh, and I sort of like building the utopia starting from that, and which is going to be, you know, inevitably wonky and uh, inevitably mixing elements of presence and future and past. Yeah. And so I, I think we have Probably this is this is really uh, fascinating stuff, and I think we've covered uh, a lot of ground here. Uh, uh, so I was wondering, maybe as we are wrapping up, uh, whether you think is there something else that you would like to share with us on the theme of conspiracies? Is is there anything in your current thinking um, and uh, you know your your the way in which conspiracies kind of feature in in your in your practice and in your thinking that you'd like to share with us and and maybe even with reference to our uh, podcast title of counter games and kind of counter conspiracies is there yeah just wonder if you had anything else to add to it right yeah um i i heard i listened to the i think the first episode was uh, was with uh wuming Wan, right um and uh, yeah, I think I'm definitely aligned with his views that uh, it's kind of like important to um, to distinguish, uh, you know, conspiracy theories from theories about conspiracy. And uh, I think the, ter the terminology of like conspiracy fantasy is more interesting just to 
be able to to not preclude the possibility of talking about actually existing conspiracies. And uh, this, I, I grew, I didn't say that, but I grew up in in Italy, and I, you know, I just moved to the United States like uh, 15 years uh, ago. Uh, so I share with. I share with, with the Wuming um, a bit of um, a background uh, and uh, we're sort of like belong, belonging to the same cultural milieu and to some extent. Uh, but um, there is something that happens to you when you are growing up in, in Italy and uh, you are uh, aware and very familiar with actual conspiracies that actually happen and shape the history of your you know, country. Um, and it, by the way, if you're interested in conspiracy and games, especially in the Italian context, I would recommend this uh, a game called Colpo di Stato or like... Uh, um, yeah, I think Colpo di Stato by We Are Muesli. Uh, there is an English version. And it's a, uh, are you familiar with it? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's about the uh, Golpe Borghese, which is a, a failed coup d'etat that happened uh, in the um, um, 70s, 60s. And uh, uh, it involved, uh, it's like, it's it's ridiculous. If you, if you, if I try to explain it, I will sound like a QAnon because it involves, uh, uh, it involves the CIA, some uh, highest member the, of the military, um, the mafia is involved. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just so it was like far right, uh, neo-fascist uh, attempted coup. Uh, and uh, this game is a, a card game. Uh, but it's like it's organizing cards, but it's more like an escape the room game that you play uh, through cards and without any props. Uh, so you're sort of like getting together with a bunch of people and solving these uh, uh, puzzles, uh, uh, many of which, uh, like, again, like they are puzzles that are probably easier to solve uh, if you are a group of people. Um, so it has that element uh, there. And everything in this puzzle is like kind of narrative and everything is very well documented. The puzzles might be kind of like formal metaphors for certain uh, certain events, but uh, it is a, a, an actual documentary game uh, that it teaches you about real facts. It has uh, you know has like footnotes essentially. So order it; it's, it's great. Uh, it's it's very fun to play, and you learn about this uh, kind of like goofy, but also kind of scary uh, event, uh, obscure event in uh, Italian history that has not been metabolized, uh, and you. I understand you're also making some kind of game or like thinking of designing a game. Yeah, we're working on a game, uh, although we are newcomers to that particular activity and very, very much amateurs uh, called Deep State. And in this game, uh, you play rival grifters, basically trying to um, propound baseless conspiracy fantasies to win money and um, followers. Uh, and the game attempts to show people in the first place that there's all of these different influences trying to uh, put conspiracies out into the world. In the second place, that there are, in fact, real conspiracies that are going on underneath. And in the third place, that conspiracy fantasizing is a fun and collective undertaking. So um, as you I can love that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let be. I want to be your playtester. No, that's that's great because, uh, um, yeah, it will be great. It will be great if you manage to, I don't know, like have a role or a mechanic that is uh, about uh, a more like functional and cynical uh, use of conspiracy, which I think is a bit. Um, it's a bit absence from the uh, conversation about conspiracies. I think there are two things that are maybe like uh, 
um, well, one thing is that there is uh, there is no almost like no language to uh, separate you know real conspiracy discourse about conspiracies versus uh, you know uh, uh, conspiracy fantasies. And uh, by the way, I was like watching this uh, animated series that just came out on Netflix called Inside Job. Uh, you know, like, uh, and that, that to me, like, uh, is a perfect representation of that sort of like a liberal sort of like mindset. And like, suddenly everything, like, in the in the animated series, is sort of like uh, imagines this world, this sort of like deep state uh, American government uh, in a comedic way. It's like, what if everything from chemtrail to you know uh, UFOs to you know the um illuminati what if they were all real or well, yeah, everything was all real and it's kind of like funny because uh, oh look at this absurd things is actually happening and bigfoot is you know uh, huffing up on chemtrails or something but uh, but by doing so it sort of like conflates uh, everything it's just like uh, denies the existence of a deep, deep state and i think the deep state is actually a pretty uh, useful concept, you know, just uh, very, you know, trivially, you know, very like concretely talking about the kind of state that doesn't change uh, throughout administration or like it's a bit hard to change the kind of uh, state, the part of the state that is uh, uh, not as flexible and not as uh, democratically accountable. Uh, so, like, I think that that is a, a perfect encapsulation of how liberals are adopting the kind of like using conspiracy fantasy to disqualify any potential, um, you know, distrust of the government. Mm, yeah, um, I, I think that really dovetails, too, with something that we heard from Jack Bradich, uh, a, a media theorist that we interviewed in another part of the podcast, who was pointing out that the 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 moral panic about conspiracy theorists does this kind of work of putting out enough flack or enough distraction that we don't actually ever ask the real questions about who does have power in this society and maybe they are in fact conspiring which you know literally just means whispering together uh yeah breathing together yeah 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 um so yeah it's a it's a really well taken point it's it's difficult and i wonder you know, at risk of extending this interview a little bit longer. But I mean, how do you, as someone who works with both satire and revelation in your work, like when we're thinking about this game that we're designing, there's on one level that we want, we want to use that satirical function and this and, and invite players into a cynical position as kind of ally, being allies with the players. Uh, mm-hmm. But we also on some level want to... Um, we also want to mobilize people. We don't just want people to end up being completely cynical and in that that kind of cynical position that you, I think, totally rightly associate with a kind of um, liberalism where you just believe that any any report that there could be some sort of conspiracy is just mass hallucination. Yeah, well, uh, I think it may be, maybe a useful thing is to start from the assumption that probably your game will be played by not by people who believe in conspiracy, you know, like uh, intensely, uh, you know, black build, or I don't know how it's called, uh, but rather like people who have, uh, you know, they're similar to you mostly because not, not be- mostly because you're making a physical game, uh, you say, right? Like it's kind of like a car game or a board game of some sort. Uh, and those are like already extremely self-selecting. Even a very, very successful game will never be a board game or like physical game. It will never really um, probably 
will rarely end in the hands of somebody who is like uh, not absolutely sure that they're gonna like uh, you know it kind of like takes so much effort like you have to pay for it you have to order it and then you have to call your friends and uh, you know learn the rules and explain the rules so you can be you can be quite assured that uh, um, I think yeah I think physical games board games uh, work better as uh, uh, sort of like an insider sort of like already converted preaching to the choir which is feel important because you know the choir needs to be entertained or you might you know have like a higher level of like uh, intellectual engagement and you can also assume that you're not gonna you know give the enemies some some tools about how to you know create conspiracies but the other yeah the other thing that i think is a bit absent from the discourse that it seems that you might be able to in, in, incorporate in your game or it's already incorporated in, in your game is the the more like cynical uh use of conspiracies like i think uh, there is a, a belief that all this QAnon uh, you know uh followers uh, or uh, you know this uh, anti-masker followers are uh, kind of like they just like don't uh understand the implications or like they are like uh, basically they uh they are like firmly believing in everything that is uh that is part of that narrative versus uh i think uh they are probably completely fine with uh you know most of it being bullshit but they understand that is uh, has a useful uh, ha has like it's useful. It might be entertaining. It's fun to think about this that kind of thing, uh, and uh, it's uh, you know like it's useful for mobilizing people around a uh, uh, cause. Uh, so yeah, sure, maybe like uh, masks are uh, useful or marginally useful in schools. But by creating a campaign in which I mobilize, you know, my my you know my folks, uh, my my base. Uh, I'm actually creating, uh, you know, uh, you know, a pipeline to, you know, representative and uh, po political, you know, uh, power in down ballot on the local level. Like they have uh, every school district is a battlefield for the right right now, and it's a very easy battle to win because <laughs> it, it can be galvanizing. It can be like a, an, an instrument of, you know, uh, of power building, the kind of stuff that we should do uh, ourselves. So yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's one thing. And the other thing is, yeah, like very easy uh, in uh, coming from games, I sort of observed that quite well uh, in uh, Gamergate, there was a bit of like um, a precursor to a lot of these trends, including uh, there was like a strong element of conspiracy of like people making weird uh, uh, charts uh, to uh, reverse engineering uh, a very small group of friends essentially and saying like oh see there is a this conspiracy between uh, journalists and uh, developers well we sort of kind of knew know each other uh, but yeah but like sort of like uh, observing Gamergate you could de definitely see how this sort of like a 4chan like attitude of this is clearly bullshit this is clearly slander and it's false but it can work um, like it can work for my very cynical political goal because to me, if you think about it, when you're thinking of like, I don't know, uh, disinformation, uh, top-down disinformation, like the CIA disseminating, uh, um, you know, false, cynically false news uh, for a political goal, uh, the CIA doesn't believe in uh, the information, obviously, that they are disseminating. Uh, they are like uh, very intentionally uh, putting out wrong information and wrong connection for a, a purpose. And so, like, uh, there is nothing to me that 
prevents uh, the same uh, approach uh, from happening on a grassroots uh, network uh, diffuse way. It's basically a whole bunch of agents thinking that they are essentially like CIA operatives and they are uh, uh, intentionally diffu diffusing information that they know is false because they know that they could help uh, and uh, maybe like move and convince other people. That is fascinating. Yeah. It basically, like uh, I would not like I, I hate when we uh, we take, uh, you know, conspiracy theory people in the good faith. I think uh, the, a majority or, you know, in a very like messy gradient, uh, a majority of them is not. They just uh, I think they are more like uh, uh, smart, politically smart in understanding that. Yeah, this this is bullshit, but it kind of works, and and I'm totally enjoying uh, uh, believing that there is like a network uh, of like you know pedophiles uh, under this it's a thing, or maybe like even like a, a more like fuzzy way is like, well maybe I don't believe that there is an actual network of pedophiles uh, in Washington, but I would not be surprised if there was. Because I will not, I, I personally, I, Paolo, will not be completely surprised that maybe like if there are some folkloristic, I mean, basically with Jeffrey Epstein, we sort of like realized that, well, actually that wasn't that far from truth. It wasn't just, it wasn't tunnels going from the White House to to the pizza place, or, you know, but uh, it was kind of like weirdly similar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I think, what, one of the things that we've been really fascinated by has been the the degree to which in a world where many real conspiracies are happening conspiracy thinking about conspiracies as maybe somewhat true partially true uh is is a major sort of theme among people and, lo and lots of people don't necessarily believe everything that is associated with a particular so-called conspiracy theory but there's that sense that some aspect of it might be true and that further, like there's a there's a certain enjoyment that comes from um, working through these ideas, and and those things can't really be denied. And yeah, this kind of dominant liberalist perspective that just says, you know, like it's all or nothing. You either believe everything you see on CNN or you're a conspiracy theorist is is extremely damaging. And in fact, even we would say to those sort of more liberalist critics, it, it's self defeating on some deep level in very dangerous ways right and it can be but you know liberal uh, paternalistic you know in a liberal way yeah. like uh, oh oh poor you know uneducated people that believe that jfk is going to be reincarnated i mean like that story is fucking amazing that this is like so fun uh it's so fun to believe i love i will you know check to the you know the webcam to see like if jfk will just show up um there is another thing that uh that this is my theory about about conspiracy theories like uh, QAnon that related to entertainment i think if you are anywhere from you know the center to to the left you have plenty of entertainment in the world if you're a right winger, you don't have plenty of entertainment. Like you cannot just turn on, you know, HBO and there is like a right wing thing. Yeah, there are maybe like some like um, war action movies that are definitely like uh, adjacent. But if you want so, to have like a little bit beyond, you know, the action stuff, uh, if you want to have a little bit more intellectual uh, engagement with a piece of media, you cannot just turn on Netflix because you will be inundated by left leaning, liberal leaning things because that's how, you know, Hollywood and all the cultural industry is 
business because uh, if you are into art or anything creative, you tend to you swing left or you become, uh, you know, we be become radicalized kind of that way. So I think uh, that is the, the that kind of <laughs> that kind of conspiracy as a form of entertainment is filling a gap that doesn't exist because they have news, they have you know bullshit news, but not so much entertainment and you know grand narratives. I have so much more that I want to talk to you about, but unfortunately, <laughs> we are we we want to keep our episodes under about an hour once we've uh, edited them. So I think we might need to draw it to a close. Mm-hmm.